please stand for the reading of God's word. Turn to Joshua chapter 11. We're going to do something that you might think later. Are we really going to do that? We're going to try to read Joshua 11 and 12. Um, Because of that, we're not going to have a New Testament reading. But chapter 12 is not very long, so I think that we can do this. Uh, These chapters will go well together for one sermon. As we enter a portion of the book that involves a lot of lists, we might be taking larger chunks of the text um, as we go along in the next few weeks. Um, There's a lot of repetition and things we want to try to get a sense for. What are the main themes that are being brought out um, in this middle section with so much uh, detail and places and people and divisions of the land and so on? Uh, So we are going to read now Joshua 11 and 12. And without further ado, uh, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, help us now as we read an extended portion of your word uh, to have our minds uh, be able to maintain focus, be able to hear and and understand what you would have us to learn from uh, this uh, challenging portion of the scriptures. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Joshua chapter 11. When Jabin, king of Hathor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshah, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah south of Kinneroth, and in the lowland, and in Nahoth Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mitzpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Mizrafoth Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hatzor and struck its king with the sword, for Hatzor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hatzor with fire. And all the kings, all the cities of those kings, and all their kings, Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hatzor alone. That Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. And they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all that land 
the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halach, which rises toward Seir, as far as Baal God in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the inhabitants of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. He took them all down. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land, according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. Now these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon with all the Arabah eastward. Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon and ruled from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites, that is, half of Gilead. And the Arabah to the Sea of Kenaroth, eastward, and in the direction of Beth Jeshimoth, to the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, southward to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. And Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, who lived in Ashtaroth and at Edre, and ruled over Mount Hermon and Salaka and all Bashan, to the boundary of the Geshurites and the Maakathites, and over half of Gilead to the boundary of Sihon, king of Heshbon. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. <coughs> and these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan, from Baal God to the, in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak that rises toward Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their allotments in the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the Negev, the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The king of Jericho won. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, won. The king of Jerusalem won. The king of Hebron won. The king of Jarmuth won. The king of Lachish won. The king of Eglon won. The king of Gezer won. The king of Debir won. The king of Gader won. The king of Hormah won. The king of Arad won. The king of Libna won. The king of Adulam won. The king of Makeda won. The king of Bethel won. The king of Tapua won. The king of Hafer won. The king of Aphek won. The king of Lasharon won. The king of Madon won. The king of Hazor won. The king of Shimron Maron won. The king of Akshaf won. The king of Ta'anach won. The king of Megiddo won. The king of Kadesh won. The king of Jokdeam in Carmel won. 
the king of Dor in Naphoth-dor won, the king of Goyim in Galilee won, the king of Tirzah won, in all, 31 kings. Amen. You can be seated. Well, as if reading uh, two chapters in one go wasn't unusual enough, uh, I'm going to do something else a little bit unusual tonight, which is uh, to make our way through this uh, longish text sort of uh, backwards in reverse order. I'm going to start with chapter 12 and explain uh, where that chapter fits into the book in, uh, uh, as a whole and where it fits in relation to chapter 11. Uh, Then I want to say a little bit about the second half of chapter 11, and as we go along, I hope this will make sense, the way that that then provides a a good context for us to understand verses 1 through 15, which is where we'll end up. Uh, So our outline for tonight tonight is going to go like this. First, we're going to talk about a comprehensive conquest, that's chapter 12. The second point is going to be ruin and rest chapter 11, verses 16 to 23, and then finally, an irresistible force, chapter 11, verses 1 to 15. So, a comprehensive conquest, ruin and rest, and an irresistible force. All right. So, if things feel a little disorienting at the moment, stick with me, and I think that the mist will clear as we go through here. First, let's talk about a comprehensive conquest. So after the uh, historical narrative of chapters 1 through 11, think about that whole first big chunk of the book, uh, chapter 12 is kind of a summary chapter that zooms way out um, until the, the, you can imagine the kind of the camera lens uh, taking in a field of view that extends actually beyond the book of Joshua. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, are actually about events that happened before the book of Joshua begins, reaching back to an earlier, uh, earlier events. Verse 1 speaks of the land beyond Jordan toward the sunrise. Toward the sunrise, which direction is that? That's east, right? So we're talking about the eastern side of the Jordan River. So think about Israel's wilderness wanderings. They complete those 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And from which direction do they come into the promised land? Remember the beginning of Joshua, they have to cross the Jordan River, right? They cross in which direction? They cross from east to west. They're going towards the Mediterranean Sea. But um, what this text is reminding us that before they crossed that river... From east to west, into the kind of heartland of Canaan, the conquest had actually begun already. In fact, it had begun in pretty dramatic fashion under the leadership of Moses uh, before Moses' death. And so, in particular, here, uh, verses 1 through 6 mention the wars against uh, Sihon the Amorite king, uh, verse 2, and then Og the king of Bashan. Um, And those wars against those two kings, Sihon and Og, are described in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 21. They're also recounted a second time in Deuteronomy 2 and 3. 
Well, as it turns out, um, there was some very desirable territory, some very desirable land um, on the eastern side of the Jordan River. I, I keep pointing to my right. It's east for me, I guess. Eastern side of the Jordan River. And at the time, um, there were some of the tribes that said, we, we actually kind of like this land on the, on the eastern side of the Jordan. The land of Gilead, for example, uh, known for being very fruitful land. Um, so the tribes of Reuben and Gad and uh, part of uh, the tribe of Manasseh, they all said, well, this, we'd, actually, we'd actually like to stay here. We're, we're happy without going any further. Uh, we want to put our roots down on this side of the Jordan River. And Moses says, so, okay, that's fine. You can take this land that we've, that we've captured from Sihon and Og um, on one condition. It's as long as you promise that you're going to send your soldiers over with the rest of the army of Israel um, to help the rest of the tribes with the conquest of the heartland of Canaan on the west, on the west side of the Jordan, between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Um, that's the side that, for example, Jerusalem is on. It's, on, it's between the Jordan River. Well, it's between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean. And um, so those two and a half tribes uh, promised to do that. They said, okay, we'll, we'll send our soldiers over and help with the rest of the conquest. They have to wonder why, all of a sudden here in chapter 12, is this history being recounted, the defeat of Sihon and Og on the eastern side? When the book of Joshua has all been about crossing over the Jordan, getting over to Jericho, and all the conquest of the land um, on the other side. Well, what's happening here, again, is the historian is zooming out to take in uh, the whole conquest in one piece here. And what he's showing by doing this is that the most recent campaigns, down in the south in chapter 10, and then up in the north in chapter 11 are a continuation of a bigger history. They're a continuation of the big story of God's comprehensive gift of the land to Israel. Verses 7 through 24 of chapter 12 then, well, what's that? Well, this is a list of, of all of the kings that Israel defeated then on, on the west side of the Jordan after they crossed over. I guess you could say it's the West Side story. Um, so these 31 kings, all of whom have been overcome by the king of kings. But see, what chapter 12 does is it connects those victories under Joshua with the earlier victories under Moses. Puts them together. Shows that they are part of the same thread of God's gracious gift of the whole land, east and west, this comprehensive conquest. Well, there's something uh, I think we can learn here. The way that God has chosen to have this Bible history revealed to us, and the way there's this pause to take stock of the whole, to fit what we've been experiencing in Joshua's one, Joshua 1 through 11 into a bigger picture. And here it is. We need to learn to think about any part of uh, the Bible's history. And in particular, we need to learn to think about our story in the context 
of the bigger story, of God's bigger story. So often, and this is especially true in kind of contemporary American culture, we, we act as though history started five minutes ago. And um, we, we can tend to, to live and kind of function in the church as though we're the first generation of Christians ever to walk the face of the earth. We're so forgetful, we're so consumed with the present, we're so consumed with ourselves and our experience. We got to remember that our story is part of a bigger story. It's the story of God's comprehensive plan to do everything that he's promised for all of his people in all ages. Uh, this impacts the way that we read the Bible, too, because sometimes when we read Bible history, we can um, tend, uh, this is partly maybe because of the way that we're taught uh, Bible stories as children, um, uh, we see them as just these different episodes, these individual episodes, just a bunch of individual tales. And each one maybe has its own lesson, a moral to the story, but they kind of get sealed off from all the other stories, as though the Bible is kind of a collection of short stories. You know, a collection of short stories... They're all good. They're all by the same writer. Maybe they have some common themes, but, but all of them are pretty much self-contained. They can stand alone. That's not the way Bible history works. There is one overarching history that's being told. And chapters like this one remind us that we must not um, kind of compartmentalize each Bible story from all of the others, as though they can be understood um, independent from each other and independent from the whole thing from the big story. And then by extension, if, if we think that way about reading the, the stories of the Bible, by extension, we also need to realize that that same unified history, that same one big story of history in God's plan continues right on down through the ages. It doesn't stop with Malachi. It doesn't stop with Revelation. Well, Revelation tells you the end of the story, but it doesn't stop at the end of Acts, say, or the end of the letters of Paul or Peter. It continues right on down through the ages, right to the present day. It's the same story, the same history of God's plan unfolding down through time from Adam, through Abraham, through Joshua, through Christ, through the apostles, and beyond the history of the Bible records to the history that follows and the history that you are a part of now. It extends all the way to your conversion, to your Christian life. You are living out that history even now. And the way that God is going to keep his promises to you in Christ is just as comprehensive and just as detailed and just as specific as the way he kept his promises to Israel under Joshua. All of these intricate details as they kind of glaze over as we hear all the names and places showing us that the, the detail with which God is committed to keeping every one of his promises and to keeping the whole set of them in every detail for his people. And he's going to do the same thing for you. Keep all of the promises and every promise to you in Christ. Because you're part of the same history. All right. Like I said, we're going to go backwards, rewind, uh, and look at verses 16 to 23 of chapter 11. Um, this is also a summary. 
section. But the, the camera lens is a little bit narrower here. Um, it's not quite as wide. So here, um, verses 16 to, to 23 review first the southern campaign of chapter 10, and then also the northern campaign uh, from the first 15 verses of this chapter. Uh, so, um, but in this case, we actually get some uh, new information, including, and this is where we want to focus, um, there's some important kind of theological reflections on uh, the, the why and the how of, of all that history of, of the conquest in the north, in the south and the north. First thing we want to notice here um, is in verse 18. I'm going, to, I'm going to kind of focus our attention on a few specific statements. Verse 18 says, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. A long time. Uh, that's important because um, chapters 10 and 11 are pretty compact in the way they tell what happened. Um, and here we learn, okay, even though you can tell all the story in a short space of a few verses, um, those victories took a long time actually to carry out all of them. Uh, the Lord was giving Israel victory after victory after victory. All of their success was coming from his almighty power as he fought for Israel. But that does not mean that the whole process was easy for Israel or that it all happened in an instant or that it did not test their patience, their resolve, their endurance. I love Colossians 1 verse 11 where Paul prays for the, that church. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Endurance and patience with joy. Not things that we naturally put together. Having the power and might of God at work in your life as a Christian doesn't mean that you're not going to need patience, long-suffering, that you're not going to need to endure a strenuous, drawn-out, hard-fought Christian life. What it does mean is that you can endure patiently with joy and with hope, too. Hope that the ultimate victory is not in doubt because it's God who's fighting for you. The ultimate victory is guaranteed. It's not guaranteed by your ability by your cleverness, it's guaranteed by the power of your almighty God. Uh, not to mention the fact that Christ has already struck the decisive blow in the first place in his death and his resurrection. And so we go through that strenuous, drawn-out, hard-fought Christian life with joy and with hope that the outcome is guaranteed. Second thing from this section. Uh, we can see one particular way uh, that God was at work, not only against the opponents Israel faced, but actually in and through the opponents Israel faced. Think. Well, that's, what's the difference? Well, in verse 20, look at that. Verse 20, what we learn here is that God's uh, providential control over this whole development of the conquest uh, was even more profound than, um, than God just being stronger than Israel's enemies. 
That's true. God was stronger than their enemies. God was able to defeat them uh, when they came and attacked. But but it's it's more profound than that. The Lord was not just at work in Israel against those enemies. He was actually at work among their enemies. He was at work in his enemies' hearts. It says here in verse 24, it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Uh, One commentator points out here, this is very similar to the way Exodus describes God's dealings with Pharaoh. In Exodus 9, um, the Lord tells Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up. For this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, God is not just sovereign against Pharaoh, more powerful than Pharaoh. It's deeper than that. God is the one who raised Pharaoh up in the first place for the specific purpose of displaying his own glory in Pharaoh's defeat. And you can see this in the way, sometimes in Exodus, during the ten plagues, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then other times, in the same context, it will say the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, just like the Lord hardened the hearts of these people. Pharaoh was responsible for hardening his own heart, but God was sovereign even over that enemy king, guiding the heart of that king like the waters Proverbs talks about in his hands, guiding it towards the ultimate conclusion that the Lord had planned and that the Lord had planned ultimately for the blessing of his people, Israel. That's what's going on here in the conquest of Canaan. From the point of view of these uh, kings, they've kind of rallied together on their own initiative to meet this threat of invasion. But, But verse 20 is saying, kind of from a God's eye point of view, we could describe that whole alliance in a very different way. God is sovereign over the hearts of men, even over the hearts of his enemies. And so the deeper reality here is that it's actually God who has assembled that alliance. It's God who gathered those kings together to attack Israel so that he might defeat them, so that he might give his people the victory over them. That should perhaps change our perspective on the opposition that we face, the obstacles that we face, the the threats that we face in this life. I think we can take refuge in the fact that, that God is going to fight for us on our behalf. We might have forgotten those, that God may have raised up those obstacles in our path in order to display his glory as he helps us through those things. Something else to notice in this section. It's significant that in verse 21, uh, Joshua defeats the Anakim. The Anakim. Uh, why is that important? Well, uh, think back to when Israel said, uh, when the spies, the 12 spies went up in the land and they came back with the bad report of the land, said, there's no way we can take the land of Canaan. Why was that? Well, a big reason why the, the, ten, the 10 bad spies said, we, we can't do this, um, was because of the Anakim. It was the Anakim. They were known for being these kind of oversized warriors very fierce, very imposing, that you simply did not want to face in battle. There's no way we can defeat Anakim. There's Anakim in the land. We feel like grasshoppers next to them, they said. Um, and they, they, they viewed us the same way. And that's the way they treat us. They squash us. That was the reason that Israel didn't go into the land. 
striking then to see this detail here in chapter 11. Uh, Ralph Davis points this out. It's as though the historian is pointing out. So this is what the, that original generation was so afraid of. But Joshua just says, Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. That's the end of the Anakim. And there was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. The cities where they remain are the cities of the Philistines. And of course that defeat of the Anakim continues with David, but that's another story. Um, Finally, let's look at the last sentence in the chapter where it says, and the land had rest from war. Uh, This is why we're calling this section rest, ruin and rest, because this is what God was bringing through this conquest. He was bringing ruin for his enemies, but rest for his people. There's rest from war because God has given Israel victory in fulfillment, in comprehensive fulfillment of his covenant promises. Uh, That's what Canaan represents, represents God's rest. The book of Hebrews makes a major point of this. He shows that Joshua led the people to, um, not to ultimate rest, he led them to a partial rest. And in fact, we're going to see, this is not the final rest even in Canaan, because there's still going to be some warfare um, in the rest of the book. The, the point being made here is that the conquest has, in principle, reached a benchmark um, of comprehensiveness where we can say, yes, God has now given Israel the land. It is theirs now by God's grace and power. And so for a time, the land has this rest from war. But um, the, way, the, the ways that we find out later, this rest is a, is a partial rest and a rest that is going to be disturbed by further warfare and and how the Canaanites are going to be completely driven out, as we'll see later, um, shows us that, that, that this rest points beyond itself to a final rest in the future, in the land that God has promised to us, in the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal, full, definitive rest that we're going to enjoy there in the presence of Christ uh, for eternity. So we get a foretaste of that here as the land has rest for more after this first comprehensive sort of roughing in of the conquest of Canaan. Okay, so I feel like we've set the context here. Um, We've talked about what the conquest as a whole means. We've talked about how it fits into the even bigger history of Israel. Um, Now we're going to really narrow down the camera angle, back down to the particular struggle for specifically the northern reaches of the land of Canaan. Um, in the first 15 verses here. So uh, chapter 10, uh, a couple weeks ago, was about the south, the conquest of the south, uh, primarily the future territory of Judah, down around the Dead Sea. Uh, Verses 1 through 15 of this chapter uh, take us up north, up north into the direction of the Sea of Galilee. Um, And it also points us uh, uh, westward toward the Mediterranean, that whole region north, north, northern part of Canaan. And there are a few things I want you to see particularly here. First is the way that in verses 1 through 5, the narrative very carefully, uh, methodically builds this picture of an absolutely irresistible force, it appears, of Canaanite armies. This coalition from 
all around this northern area. Amorites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Hivites, this long list of all of these different nations assembling together uh, with all their troops, verse 4, it says, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. I mention of horses and chariots is important in terms of the warfare of this period of time, this place in the world. Uh, horses and chariots would have been like having tanks when your enemies had none. Israel didn't have horses and chariots. So it's not just the force of numbers they have to contend with. They are outgunned as well, so to speak. And so all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Okay, so it, it seems like an impossible situation. This is an overwhelming um, force of Israel's enemies. But what do you know from verse 20? It's one of the reasons for working backwards. Whose will is at work behind all of this? Who has assembled this coalition against Israel in an ultimate sense? Well, ultimately, it's the Lord, isn't it? The Lord has assembled all of these armies together in one place so that he might defeat all those kings at once. You may remember from several weeks ago, there's a similar coalition, and we thought through how this happens in the prophecy of Joel, how it happens at Armageddon in the book of Revelation, God gathering all the kings together so he can defeat them all in one shot. And so the Lord says to Joshua, Joshua, do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time, I will give over all of them slain to Israel. And so really, it's a double meaning this third point, it's not the Canaanite alliance that's really irresistible. The irresistible force in this passage is the Lord. And no one can resist his plan. In God's providence, he's chosen to make his power known, um, really by stacking the odds against Israel as dramatically as possible, making the other side seem as undefeatable as he can, except they're not. No more than the Titanic was unsinkable. So, once again, this theme is trumpeted over and over, this total sovereignty and total faithfulness of Israel's covenant God. That's what this passage is revealing. There's something else we're supposed to see here, too, though, in Joshua's response. If we're to see the total sovereignty and faithfulness of God on the divine side of the covenant... There's also something else we're supposed to see on the human side of the covenant here, which is the total faithfulness of Joshua to carry out the word of God. So as Joshua carries out this battle, uh, the verses that follow make a point of emphasizing uh, Joshua's very detailed obedience, his obedience to God's instructions in every particular. Uh, in fact, it explicitly says, Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses, burned their chariots with fire. Verse 15, just as the Lord had commanded Moses' his servant. So Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And as we've seen before, in that perfect obedience of Joshua, we have yet again a foreshadowing of the perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus came into the world, think about it, the threat that Christ's people faced was much more dire even than this horde of Canaanites with all their horses and chariots. Remember what Apostle Paul says when he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, right? We wrestle against 
the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Of course, there were human expressions of the malice of Satan too. You remember this morning how we saw from Acts chapter 4 as the Christians gathered there in prayer remembered Psalm 2 and applied it to their situation. They say, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Once again, you had this great horde of enemies gathering together against the Lord Jesus now, but why? How do they go on in that prayer? All of these people were gathered against the Lord Jesus to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Remember, they pray. All of those people were assembled against Jesus by the Lord's will and even at his bidding so that what? So that Jesus might willingly lay down his life on the cross to bear the punishment that we deserved. And it was ultimately God's purposes that were being accomplished. Those weren't the only enemies that Christ or his people faced. Think about those really imposing enemies, your sin, the curse of death that it warrants from the judgment throne of God. But those enemies, too, Christ defeated on the cross. See, the real irresistible force at work in your life is not the enemies who are assembled against you, terrible though they seem. Sometimes it feels as though your own sin is irresistible. As it wells up in your heart, can't seem to get rid of it. Sometimes the tides of culture seem to be sweeping over things that we hold dear, seem like an irresistible force. Brothers and sisters, the real irresistible force at work in your life is the resurrection life of the Lord Jesus Christ overflowing to you through the Holy Spirit because of the total sovereignty and the total faithfulness of your covenant God and because of the total obedience of your Savior Jesus. And so as you think about these two summary chapters in light of that bigger story of the gospel, I hope that you will see and aspire in Christ to the really the fearless courage and obedience this passage calls us to then as servants of the Lord today, to a renewed confidence that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, as Israel found out. That if God is for us, who can really be against us? And when you feel those enemies of God, when you feel that those enemies of your growth and peace in Christ are gathering against you as a great horde, irresistible in their might, remember that your God is totally sovereign and totally faithful. And in the end, our hope is in this same God. This same God who brought Israel rest in Canaan, kept all his promises to them who defeated those enemies that he had gathered for that very purpose. That same God is going to keep his promises to you. He's going to bring you 
to the rest that yet remains for the people of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for um, the details of the history of all the ways you kept your promises to Israel. Thank you for your sovereignty over their enemies and ours. And Lord, we ask that you would uh, help us to see with the eyes of faith uh, what you're doing in the midst of our daily struggle against things that seem too big for us. But to know, have confidence that you are at work, that it's ultimately your, uh, your purposes that are being carried out. And Lord, with that confidence, we pray you would help us to go out in obedience to your word in every detail because we trust that you're going to keep your promises to us in every detail. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.